0: You know, when the Moroni government came to power, they increased the immigration from previous levels, which were in the hundreds of thousands, to about two hundred thousand.
1: Kind of a bunch of yobs and wankers went down to the border to try to, I don't know, uh, be the first line of defense against these people coming into Canada. They were far right. Hello and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. I'm recording this on May the 13th, 2020, and I hate to keep repeating myself, but yes, we are still in the midst of our response to COVID-19. A lot of us are uh, perhaps getting a little bit antsy or fed up with the situation. Just yesterday, I was telling my wife, I think I've had enough. I I want to go back to normal, whatever normal looks like. But for today's podcast, I am bringing an old friend of mine whom I've known for quite some time, uh, Andrew Griffith, who was formerly a Director General for Citizenship and Multiculturalism in the Government of Canada. He had a number of positions across, uh, across time. He's written a lot of books on multiculturalism. He has a fascinating blog that you really should check out called Multicultural Meanderings, an all thing immigration and multiculturalism related. And I'm absolutely thrilled that he's agreed to join me on the podcast. So, welcome to the podcast,
0: Andrew. Well, thanks for the invitation, Phil.
1: I don't know if you heard, but I had a fascinating podcast I just put up. Um, I I got into contact with a guy who's running for the Green Party leadership. Uh, Yeah, I saw that.
0: I haven't had time to listen to it. Yeah, he
1: took issue with with a Hill Times article I wrote in which I said, it's not impossible that some people in the Green movement will resort to violence against pipeline projects if they feel that there's no other way forward, if they're not being paid attention to. And he took quite uh, issue at that. So I called him. And we had a very civil yeah. conversation. I said, Well, why don't we have this conversation on a podcast? And, yeah. and he agreed. And I think part of why he agreed, because it's one more way to get his name out, he is running for, you know, replace Elizabeth May. But yeah. um, I'm curious what you think of, of the podcast, because he comes up with some ideas that, uh, in my perspective, are, um, well, rather left of center on what constitutes a threat to national security and, and what CISA should be doing about it. But uh, it's already got a lot of play on social media. People have listened to it and, uh, and, and weighed in um, on his particular candidacy and things like that. So, you know, Andrew, I, I, I'm definitely someone who will entertain just about anybody's views. So let's start with something very basic for a lot of my listeners that, who don't happen to live in Canada. Can you give us sort of a, the Coles Notes version? And by using the term Coles Notes, by the way, you know what it means, but I'm dating myself big time. I don't know if anybody <laughs> uses Coles Notes anymore like I did in high school. Give us the sort of uh, summary version of, uh, from a Canadian perspective, uh, how do we see immigration as a phenomenon? And I don't want, maybe not too much detail about historically, but I mean, essentially, is, is Canada more or less seen as an immigrant friendly country?
0: Uh, more or less, yes. Um, and probably particularly so in the current context. But I mean, historically, Canada has always viewed itself as built by immigrants, sometimes forgetting about the uh, indigenous peoples. Um, but, you know, different waves of immigration over time have basically built the Canada that we know now. Um, and if you look at sort of recent, relatively recent times, sort of the, the other thing that's interesting is that it's been basically bipartisan approaches to immigration. So you know, when the Mulroney government came to power in, uh, what was it? 1990? Yeah, 80, 84, you know, I forget, I forget. So they increased the immigration from uh, previous levels, which were in the hundreds of thousands, to about 200,000. And that sort of kept on creeping up under, uh, uh, you know, the Gretchen government and under the Harper government. And even the Harper government under the 2008 recession, they maintained immigration levels rather than cutting that. Of course, currently now we have, uh, uh, which is probably going to be disrupted by COVID-19, is an immigration plan that increases annually by about uh, 1% or so. Um, So now the current immigration plan has about 140,000. Um, that will change this year given uh, COVID-19, but uh, the current government is committed to in- annual increases in immigration, and the opposition has not contested that in any major way.
1: Those Go are fa- those are fascinating figures. So, three hundred forty thousand is is about one percent of our population that we take in as, as new Canadians. And then the point you make about the Mulroney, you know, Mulroney being a conservative, Kretzian uh, being a liberal, Harper a conservative, now Trudeau a liberal, is that in Canada we don't have these polarizing right versus left debates on immigration for the most
0: part, do we? No, there is a, there is a there is a small percentage that uh, are concerned about levels, but you know, we almost had a. A test case in the 2019 election with uh, Max Bernier and the People's PPC or whatever it's called, uh, which really ran on a very strongly anti-immigrant, anti-multiculturalism uh, messaging and got less than 2% of the vote. Um, and I think he you know, uh, elected no, no members and nobody even came close to being elected, even the political leader lost. So I think that's a bit of a test there. It doesn't mean there aren't undercurrents um, and people who have concerns about or feel uncomfortable with large-scale immigration and some of the related issues with that, um, whether it be in relation to uh, immigration values or, uh, you know, the values of immigrants and everything, how they're different from uh, old stock Canadians, to use that expression. Um, But by and large, you know, Over 60% of Canadians understand and appreciate and support immigration, at least for economic uh, purposes, the economic uh, class of immigrants. There's a bit more debate over the family members who come in and refugees, obviously. You know,
1: you you did raise the People's Party of Canada under Max Bernier, and I remember that well. I mean, he he was as far right as you get in this country in terms of political parties. And as you said, uh, when it came to the general election, he was uh, his he and his party were roundly rejected by Canadians. They got, got pockets of support here and there, but nothing close to being anything near a a seat in Parliament. So, so let let's go into the the obvious direction in terms of this podcast, Andrew, and that is there are those that would say that. Immigration is potentially bad because you could allow people into this country who could pose a threat to national security, i.e. they're terrorists. So, for example, if you bring in people from the Middle East, you might be bringing in Hezbollah operatives. Or if you're bringing people from Afghanistan, they could be Taliban or Al-Qaeda. I want to ask a question of you, a general question, about how you think the government of Canada as an entity handles that particular challenge. And and for the record, I will state that, you know, CESIS, so the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, where I used to work, plays a huge role in immigration, in doing some vetting and some background checks that they can advise the government on whether or not person A or person B uh, could, in fact, pose a threat to national security. From the perspective then of that national security slash immigration nexus, how do you think we're doing in terms of uh, satisfying that fear that some people have that the immigration system is an open door for terrorists to come into Canada.
0: Well, I think people who say it's an open door for terrorists just don't know what they're talking about to be quite blunt. It's not an open door. Um, Cause as you mentioned, obviously with your, you know, uh, CSIS does a fairly extensive vetting process. The RCMP does vetting for criminal records and everything like that. Um, so it's probably about as good a process as you could have in place. Um, that being said, of course, um, no process is perfect, right? Right. You know, you, you you know, you you try and address the obvious threats. You do all the checks. You have the uh, liaison with foreign agencies to sort of identify people and and the like. Um, and then you also do things like what was interesting when we accepted. Uh, many refugees from Syria you know, following the civil war and everything like that, there was a conscious decision to select families rather than single men. And part of that calculation, I wasn't part of it, I assume, was the fact that it generally felt that bringing family units posed less of a risk than uh, angry young men, to use an expression, maybe some angry young women on their own too. Um, so... There is considerable effort on the part of the government uh, to make sure the vetting process is effective, and this has always been a, a this has been a long term concern of Canada. And I think it sort of dates back to you know even even before nine eleven. You know when there was always a fear that somebody who immigrated to Canada would go to the United States. And perform a terrorist act or a in violent act, and how that would impact upon uh, the ability of Canadians to freely travel to the United States and return.
1: The infamous Ahmed um, Rassam case in '99, where he was, crossed the border and uh, from British Columbia to Washington State, and was it was stopped by a very alert border guard on his way to Los Angeles Airport to carry out an attack. I guess that's the classic one, right?
0: That's right, yeah, and, and and I think that was a real wake-up call to the Canadian government. And I think after that time, they really started to tighten up, and then 9-11 just further uh, reinforced that tightening up. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, you know more about security and more about these checks than I do, but I don't really see there's there major weaknesses in the system. Uh, but again, you know, no system can be perfect. You know, we in any... Aspect of whether people follow the law or like that, we, you know, we, we still have criminals. We have people who, a certain percentage of people who did robbery. We have a certain percentage of, of murders. It's just part of society. Unfortunately.
1: You're right. I mean, the only perfect system would be a nil system whereby you didn't take anybody in that way. You've got a hundred percent chance of success because you're not actually many new Canadians. And as you pointed out at the outset, Andrew, Canadians, Overwhelmingly, see immigration as good for the economy. They're they're good for the country because we are still a relatively small country with a lot of territory. I, I want to keep up on this this notion of this link between um, you know national security and and immigration. And you'll recall that uh, I think maybe it was a year and a half or two years ago now there was this issue with a bunch of people coming up through Quebec at the uh, the Roxham Road unmanned border post coming from New York State. Uh, people who were immigrants in the United States but who didn't have status and were afraid of being deported back to their homelands. If memory serves me correct, there was a a large number of Haitians that came north. Of course, Haitians speaking French. They could live in Montreal, other parts of Quebec. And and the reaction to that, we had a whole bunch of, I call them, you know, yobs and wankers went down to the border to try to, I don't know, uh, be the uh, first line of defense against these people coming into Canada, they were far-right groups. Things like, I don't know if the 3%ers were there or La Meute, but a bunch of right-wing groups in Canada. In your estimation, given that there are groups like this in the country, but relatively small in comparison to, let's say, parts of Western Europe and, and certainly in parts of the United States, which are quite frightening now see the, the demonstrations against COVID lockdown, do we have a real sense that there is a, a possibility that some of these actors may engage in violence when in, in terms of the immigration issue because they really in their hearts believe these people to be invaders they're going to bring us harm or is this a uh, an over over interpretation on my part
0: i don't think so in terms of the the, the groups that you cited i mean they're clearly white supremacist in nature they're clearly as a result xenophobic um <clears throat> degree to which they will engage in violence, I don't really have enough information to to judge on that. There certainly is the possibility because, you know, you see, certainly see that in the United States where the, uh, the license uh, that has been given by President Trump to be racist, quite frankly, um, has given license to some violence. And they're armed to the teeth in the States too. That's right. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so I think there are those risks there. I mean, the the difference is that in Canada, there is nobody, I think that's really, you know, in terms of a mainstream politician or anything like that at the federal provincial level, who is really sort of giving any of those people cover, you know, nobody's saying, saying they're reasonable people on both sides. (laughs) Um, You know, that's not a part of the Canadian discourse. Uh, So, I think the social license for those groups in Canada is less than in the United States in particular and in Europe, many European countries as well. Uh, but they do get some airtime and there are there is sort of right-wing media that uh, whether it be uh, Rebel, True North, or if you go further to the extreme Act for Canada that sort of compiles this stuff, there certainly is a percentage of people who lean that way and think that way, uh, but the question of how many would actually act that way beyond the occasional uh, uh, demonstration. Um, and, the, and the other thing was that struck me as interesting um, in the current context is, you know, the example of how Ontario Premier Doug Ford who's conservative and tends to be a populist in his language, uh, dismissed people who protested against the lockdown as a bunch of yahoos. Right. That was an amazing, too. You know, I, I mean, I think of a lot of us who exactly
1: thought we're wondering just quite what, you know, what to make of Doug Ford. Was he, you know, more in tune with sort of typical American populism than Canadian? And I think a lot of us were quite pleasantly surprised when he came, when he came out with that criticism.
0: Yeah, no, and I and I think you know the other thing is that that's a comment that a Justin Trudeau could never make because of his background, because of the way he speaks. But Doug Ford have given his his general tenor and everything like that. He can make that. And then the other one is where he basically served, you know um, you know made a release really, a statement against the Americans. You know you this is you know you know I I paraphrase it but he basically was really savage in his critique of the America taking over uh, shipments of masks um, to, for their own needs and he said that's not how we, how you do it when you're a, you're an ally or anything like that. I,
1: I think we're seeing some interesting performances during COVID both good and bad and I, and I would agree with you this is a one particular good one. I don't disagree with you as well that you know the, a lot of the groups that have been protesting at Roxham Road or there's a I think there's some protests out in New Brunswick as well uh, a lot more light than heat. With a lot of these groups, uh, I don't see them particularly as capable. I've been pushing back for years now with people that say that the far right poses by far the greatest terrorist threat to Canada. A bunch of these guys are just—they're just losers. Um, you know, this could change. I'm not—I'm not—I'm not naive, but we certainly have not seen the levels of violence in this country that we have in parts of Western Europe and United States. I want to shift the conversation a little bit now, Andrew. To We've agreed, and I think that we're both correct here, that Canada is generally speaking, first of all, we are a multicultural nation. I mean, as I tell people, I'm, I'm third generation Eastern European. My, my grandparents came to this country right around the time of the First World War from Ukraine and from Poland. And then, so I'm, you know, Polish, Ukrainian, Canadian, whatever you want to call that. We are a, t- a tolerant nation when it comes to multiculturalism and immigration. How do we have, though, this conversation about national security and multiculturalism and immigration? And I'll simply cite an example that I'm sure you're familiar with. Sometime last year, and I don't have the, the date off the top of my head, but uh, Jagmeet Singh, who is the leader of the, new de- the NDP, the new, new Democratic Party in Canada, was asked a question about Sikh extremism. And uh, to say he performed less than optimally would be an understatement. So again, for, for those who you know aren't as familiar in, with, with Canadian history, I, rem- I have to remind you that the single greatest act of terrorism in the history of the planet prior to 9-11 was the downing of an Air India flight in July of 1985, sorry, June 1985, uh, which was planned from Vancouver, Canada and British Columbia by, by Sikh extremists. And of course, we have the whole Air India inquiry, et cetera, et cetera. How do we as a nation and not just government officials, but as, as Canadians, how do we have this conversation about the links between multiculturalism and Fringe actors that will engage in violence. We certainly have had Muslim Canadians from a variety of countries have planned attacks here in this country, we already referred to Sikh extremism. We had Armenian extremism. I remember the Armenian attacks in Ottawa back in the early yes. 80s by Asala in the ARA. So how do we have that conversation? In a respectful way, where we can actually address issues that are real without pointing figures and and saying that all these people are a problem, and and then therefore feed the beast that the only safe immigration is zero immigration because if you bring anybody in from India who happens to be from the Punjab, they might be Sikh terrorists. How do we have that conversation?
0: Uh, that's that's always one that I gr- I grapple with, and I think I think you grapple with it as well. Quite frankly, um, I think the the fundamental way is you have to start off. And making it clear from the outset um, that it's individuals within a community, individuals within a particular faith, um, and that it doesn't. Ref- and you have to frame it in a way that it it's sort of like, It's not about the majority. It's about certain certain segments of that group that um, that raise these issues. Um. And I and I and it's very important in terms of kind of terminology use. And I remember when I was uh, in my multiculturalism job, you know, some of the debates about how and I think the same debates was happening across CSIS the and other organizations. How you actually refer to um, extremism uh, of members of the Muslim communities. Um, and I think you know, and I think the terminology at the time we didn't want to say Islamic-inspired extremism, as it would sort of slam everybody. Um, and then the people started of saying, well, Islamist, because that's a bit more uh, precise in terms of that. And I, I, I forget how it's actually sort of resolved in the end, but it was really trying to make sure that when you talk about it. You're not labeling all the people. You're trying to sort of narrow down the conversation, the group that is um, problematic um, in terms of uh, law enforcement and the like, or a general um, uh, social inclusion and co- cohesion. Um, and I think the other thing is that you know ongoing outreach and. Engagement with the broader community um, is also important in terms of making sure um, that it's not perceived as an attack. And I know that uh, from my time in government, and I, as I assume it's continued on. You know, the, the security agents, whether it be CSIS or RCMP or others, they do spend a fair amount of time on engagement uh, and 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 conversations. Um, and I think they've probably gotten better. At how they actually interact on those issues um but it's just uh, it's hard and, and you know and currently um you know we're living through that with respect to how do we engage in conversation about china and its role in uh, uh the spread of, of covid 19 in a way that doesn't Focuses the conversation on the Chinese regime and the Chinese government, but not the Chinese people, and above all, not uh, Chinese Canadians. And we've seen there be a number of incidents against Chinese Canadians that you know have nothing really to do <laughs> with uh, uh, Wuhan and, and and the development and expansion of COVID nineteen. You, you raise a lot of good points there, Andrew, and I certainly
1: agree with you that. You know, when it comes to outreach, and this is something I was involved in both at CSIS and at Public Safety Canada, is having that conversation. And in my case, it was with the with Muslim Canadians in multiple communities about how do you talk about this issue? And it was, yeah, it was a, del- a delicate bit of a dance. And uh, it, it can be done. It's not easy. Um, and you have to do it because if nothing else, you, you you do want to reach out to Canadians, explain what your concerns are. Because at the end of the day, uh, the best eyes and ears about people that are planning bad things is the community writ large. It's not, you know, your CISA sources or your RCMP agents. I, I want to sort of bring this to, a, to, to a, an end here, with picking up on something you just said about, you know, COVID and uh, the People's Republic of China and the fact that we have had uh, a few uh, hate crimes against Chinese Canadians who've been assaulted by individuals who, as you said, somehow figure out that they're the... One person who spread COVID around the world and they happen to live in Surrey or in Edmonton or whatever. In fact, I I, bl- I do believe there are some statistics that just came out about an increase in hate crime. But I'm pushing back and saying, is it really an increase based on previous year's data? I mean, can we make that statement? Yeah, but that's a whole other issue. If you could sort of speculate for me about the impact of this coronavirus, it's been a couple months now that we've been in lockdown. And it obviously has changed the way we do things do you see this potentially leading to a greater strength albeit relative to the percentage albeit low of Canadians who are anti-immigrant because they would say look at what we look what immigration gave us it gave us covid-19 all these chinese canadians on the west coast they all gave us covid-19 do you see this as something that could in fact strengthen them or am i am i reaching a little bit too far here
0: probably a bit too early to say definitively. You know, the the quintessential bureaucratic response, we need more evidence. But in all the public opinion research that I've seen, and there hasn't been much recently, we'll get some uh, more data, I think, in September, is it's not that which will drive the conversation in terms of immigration, I believe. it will be more the question, okay, we know the economy is taking a really big hit. Uh, we also know um, you know, the economy is not gonna come roaring back. I mean, the devastation's just been too wide. The travel sector is gonna take years to recover. Restaurants a lot are gonna go bankrupt, you know, um, and everything like that. Um, so I think the immigration debate will be more, and I think it's a, a legitimate uh, debate to have, is given a large-scale increase in unemployment and the economic devastation. Is it reasonable to continue to accept 300,000-plus immigrants per year, or do we need to take a pause, a partial pause, and not, not shut everything down, but a partial pause that sort of says, okay, maybe we should sort of moderate the increases until you know we start to see the... Uh, you know, the situation coming back to a more normal environment. So that's where I think the discussion will be more rather than, um, you know, the the risk. And, you know, the, the, the we also know that, in fact, that even if the virus originated in Wuhan, most of the transmission actually occurred from people coming from the United States or Europe right. in Canada. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's where I would expect that to happen. And I'm not seeing... Much um, again from the mainstream politicians that that's even uh, being you know being part of the discussion, but I think even the Minister of, of Immigration um, in his uh, committee of appearance this week, you know, hinted there might be some changes, and uh, I was able to sort of sit in on a on a presentation by one of the. Uh, Uh, immigration officials that's saying they're they're doing some thinking because they have to look at the modeling and everything like that. And the other aspect I would say is that if the economy isn't really doing well, a a temporary uh, reduction in immigration levels um, may actually be both to the advantage of people already living in Canada, as well as potential immigrants because if people come here and there are no jobs, um, that doesn't help the integration process. It's still a bit too early to say, but I don't think uh, COVID will be used as a reason to reduce I- immigration. will be more the economic impact of COVID-19 that will probably be the basis for analysis and discussion.
1: It's important that you underscore something I've been saying for a while, is that a lot of these reports of an increase in hate crimes or uh, the rise the further rise of the far right a term i I come across a lot is really anecdotal it's there's not a lot of evidence and analysis that have been brought to bear and i'm i'm seeing the same thing everyone's saying terrorism is going to rise terrorism is going to rise i said where i'm not seeing a rise in terrorism anywhere in the world where it already isn't on a high level like afghanistan and or somalia and i people say well the chatter's up i said my god if you rely on chatter as an indication of upcoming terrorist attacks, you're in deep trouble because the vast majority of terrorists and, and and violent actors say all kinds of stupid shit online and never actually act on it. So I, I there's a very. So I think you're right. We have to wait for more evidence to to, uh, to draw these types uh, types of conclusions.
0: <laughs> and the other thing I would just sort of point out is the other thing that's also significant is that whenever these Anecdotes of hate crimes emerge, and they're real. I mean, I don't dismiss anecdotes. It's very clear that politicians all respond and condemn them. But there's nobody who's sort of defending. It's even even uh, Bernier doesn't. He, he's silent on this stuff. Um, so, but you know, what, if it happens in Vancouver, you've got the mayor, you've got other leaders doing that. You've got the PM, you've got the premier. So, in conclusion, I guess it's it's sort of unCanadian,
1: right? I mean, as you said, we've been saying that this country, generally speaking, for the better part of well, seventy five years, I'd say, since the end of the Second World War, we have been uh, rather an open country when it comes to immigration. We see it as a good thing for this. We see multiculturalism as a good thing. We have seen the benefits that's made to our economy. So, you know, COVID nineteen notwithstanding, and I don't I don't dismiss your arguments about the economy. I think that's probably what's going to drive this notion we don't expect to see a hard right turn anytime soon in, in Canada uh, when it comes to immigration where those who are just anti-immigrant or racist or xenophobic or whatever, or see this as a threat to national security, that's not happening anytime soon in in in, uh, in your your analysis.
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Listen, Andrew, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on. We've, uh, we've covered a fair bit of ground and, and, for a, a, pro, a podcast on terrorism, and terrorism is rarely a good thing to talk about, rarely a cheery subject, I am so happy to say that you were able to bring a perspective to it that I think is realistic, um, and I happen to agree with most of what you ha- you say, that you know, we're not going to hell in a handbasket. We're not on the, on the precipice of, of a, a national disaster when it comes to terrorist attacks in this country. Terrorism does not pose an existential threat to this country. Terrorism is not something that... Rides in on the coattails of the 300,000 immigrants that that come into Canada. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to coming on the podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Phil. Always a pleasure.
1: So that was my conversation with Andrew Griffith. I'd love to hear what you think about what he had to say. What do you think about the links between immigration and national security? Are we doing a good enough job at vetting potential immigrants? Should we do something different? You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn or on Facebook. If you like this conversation and you want to share it with others, please go to my website, www.borealesthreatenedrisk.com. You can find it there, and you can subscribe to all the content. Simply go to the subscribe button, fill in your information, and you'll get a daily digest of blogs and podcasts to your inbox every morning. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.